everyone. Um, my name is Daryl Missy. I am the director of Children's Division, and I would like to welcome you uh, to our first podcast. Uh, I've never done a podcast. I don't think any of my colleagues here have ever done a podcast. So we are we are boldly going where no Children's <laughs> Division person has gone before. So uh, we're glad to have you with us. Uh, we're going to do these periodically, and we're going to talk about topics and with interesting people. And for our first guest, uh, we're excited to have Bill Bott from Change and Innovations. Uh, I would like for, for uh, my staff to go ahead and uh, introduce themselves, and they're gonna, we're going to be having this conversation with Bill today. So, uh, Joni, why don't, why don't you start? Tell who you are. And I'm Joni Rogers, Deputy Director of Operations and Administration for Children's Division. Hi, I'm Sarah Smith, and I am deputy director that um, gets to work with prevention and safety. And we're really excited to have Bill with us today. Bill is um, with Change and Innovations, and we've been working with Bill since uh, August mm-hmm. of 2021. And his team, they're amazing, really looking across program lines at how we can enhance practice. Um, and we're getting ready. Um, one of the reasons to go with this uh, podcast today is we're getting ready in mid-February of 2022 to launch our central consult unit, which will be rolling out statewide. So it's really an exciting time in the division and um, the work that their team is doing with our children's division team is just spectacular. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be a part of the inaugural podcast <laughs> for the division. Um, I'm excited also about the changes that we're seeing in Missouri. I think what we've seen across the country as in child welfare, particularly, we have a capacity crisis, right? We have entirely too much work coming in and not enough resources to deal with it. And we've tried prevention type things before, and we have not seen the numbers of intake calls go down. They, they continue to tick up year after year and families are getting more complex. Problems are, are more complex. Services are, are getting tighter and tighter, particularly in the pandemic. We've seen a lot of issues. And to try something radical, to try to give our folks some room to actually do the work that they came to work. I'm really excited about it. I'm excited to be here to talk about it. I should probably mention Terry's feeling under the weather, so she's not able to be with us. But, um, and for those that don't know, Terry Armistead's the deputy director over permanency. So from when kids come into care all the way um, through their permanency goal, um, licensing, subsidy, contracted case management, all that's under her. So she's not able to be here, but um, Bill and his team are currently final in finalizing recommendations because they've also done work with the AC work groups to come up with some recommendations similar to what we've seen on uh, the CAN side. So we're trying to get through the central consult unit rollout and then move over into that area um, to plan and implement some changes on that side as well. And I would also mention um, Bill, for those that are listening, may remember him from our supervisor or circuit manager conference in November. He presented and had rave reviews. He breaks down the work in a way that it's understandable. People um, are on board with that. And we're really appreciative of the work that he's helped us with. Um, And he mentioned a little bit about what we're seeing across the country in terms of child welfare and resources and complex families. Where do you feel like Missouri sits in comparison to that? Okay, so that's a tricky question (laughs) since we're all working together still. Uh, Missouri is about the 15th state or large county because some states run their child welfare county based 
uh, that I've either worked shoulder to shoulder with, or they've allowed me to do a deep dive into their data to really see how their processes are running. Um, I think one of the things that we've seen, we track every folks that will, you know, every child welfare division that will give us their data. We track some, some uh, kind of some benchmarks that we can see where we are as a country. And we know that across the country right now, from for those 15 at least, the average time to do an assessment runs somewhere around 16 hours. I've seen them as low as nine, and I've seen them as high as 22, but the average is about 16 hours to do an assessment. So that's from the time the report is assigned to a worker until a safety decision has been made, documented and finalized, or it's been transferred to that next unit if we have that child in care. Missouri is at the low end of that. You guys are actually running somewhere around 10 hours, 10 and a half hours, depending on the complexity of the case. Now, that's not saying every case will take 10 hours, right? We always have those anomalies where we have some that'll take 30, 40, 60 hours plus, and we have some that'll take a little less, but you're running at about 10 hours. So you're at the lower end of work time, which to us shows that you have at least done some of those initial efforts in trying to keep your documentation under control, trying to make sure that your safety model is being followed and that kind of thing. So because of that, I think you guys are in better shape than other states when it comes to the amount that you have past deadline. Um, because that those two usually go together. The longer it takes to do a single assessment, typically the more we have past deadline, unless magically a state has found a tremendous amount of staff, which nobody has. So you guys do have some past deadline and you have a lot that work right up to deadline, but we have seen states massively over deadline where 68% plus of their reports go over deadline. So actually, Missouri is like a healthy state generally. It probably doesn't feel that way because of the immense pressure of that capacity crisis that everyone's experiencing. But overall, you guys are like a healthy patient trying to get healthier, not a patient on their deathbed who we have to bring out the paddles and shock back <laughs> to life before we can get them up and walking again. I'll say um, one of the questions that I think probably everyone's asking, because I know this because we've had conversations that you've worked in state mm -hmm. government, but you've never done field work um, in child welfare. So how do you and your team feel like you can fix it or assess it accurately? Yeah. So I'm a government geek. I grew up in government. <laughs> I worked in the federal government for seven years, but not in child welfare. And then I worked in state government for almost 15 years, also not in child welfare. So I've never knocked on a door. I've done a ride along. It was a horrible experience. I would have removed every kid we saw that day. Um, I just don't have the heart for this work. Uh, and I wish I did, but I don't. The offices that I worked in were all of those crazy offices where every time we get a new governor and they come in, they say, we're going to you know, make government run more like a business. And when I first got into government, it was TQM. It was a total quality management movement. And then it was lean and six sigma and zero defects and everything else that, they, that that's come along. And I think it's precise. It was, you know, those tools in context of child welfare. So it's really looking at the work through that lens of a system or a process lens. How do we do the work um, that is different than what we typically get? Uh, social workers look at the work as what's best for this child. And they have to do that, right? That they're in charge of that child's safety and well-being and working with the family. And sometimes someone from outside looking in and say, look, I can kind of take the child out to a degree and just look at how we do the work. And if I can help how we do the work, the plan is to free up those amazing folks who are actually doing the work to have more time to do the work, working with the child and doing the child welfare work. 
So I think it's precisely because I don't have a social work background that I've been able to kind of look at a different way that you do guys do the work and see if there are help teams kind of at least explore different solutions that might work for you. So to, it seems to me that what you're doing is you're looking at it systemically uh, rather than with regard to the, it could, it could be any topic. It's, it's a matter of what the system is. Cause I, you know, I'm, I'm by training a, a lawyer, so I'm, I'm looking at things legally often. And, uh, and I think that's really interesting because that gives you a different kind of perspective on, on the work and that things, things that can be done. Right. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's the lens in which different people see the work. So you're naturally going to see it through that legal lens, which is great because sometimes we lose that lens and that fractures the relationships between court and the department. And that fractured relationship leads to kids being in care longer. So coming in with a legal lens, the hope is that you can see some of those issues and bond that. Coming in from a practice lens, like Joni and Sarah and Terry, uh, you come in with a practice lens and you're looking at how do we enhance practice and make the best decisions. My lens is a process or a systems lens, which is how is the work done? Those all combined should lead to better results for children, which is what we all want. We just come at it in different ways. I think that that's a great um, point. And I think you articulated that really well, because I think in our own division, that's where we're all looking at it from a different lens. It's all about practice. It's what I've said. Like, that's why we're not experts, because you're always learning and you're always growing. There's always new things. You're always going to come at it from different angles. Um, and that's why it's called best practice, not expertise. <laughs> the first question I asked you when we first met was, do you have confidence that your folks are making the right decision? Because if you don't, if you think we're making the wrong decision a lot, well, then you have a practice problem and my lens won't help at all. Right. So those contracts, we tend to look at your data and maybe offer some things and kind of go away. But if you think your practice is sound, and I would, from the interviews that I've done with staff across the state, with supervisors on up and also some workers, um, everyone says the same thing. It says, no, we think we're making the right decisions at the right time. It's just getting the work done that, that's the issue. So, yeah, those three lens, and it seems like your practice lens, and I know you guys have made some recent practice changes as well, but I think the evolution of that is right on track. It's the systems lens that usually takes a backseat. And I think we saw most, you know, all of those lenses coming together when we were doing the mapping in these different groups with change and innovations, we had our child abuse and neglect hotline unit, our um, investigative team, family-centered services, and AC. And each one, um, what I really appreciate about change and innovation is these are frontline workers that are involved in these teams really mapping out the processes. And it's really interesting to see different team members from throughout the state coming together and not only the lens of the judiciary and the process, but even different parts of the state coming together in that child welfare um, lens and mapping out what the process should look like, um, what it actually is looking like. And when you're talking about those kinks um, kind of in the uh, pipelines nationally, what are you seeing is really clogging those pipes? Yeah, so that's that's great because there are trends, right? We, we've seen them in every child welfare uh, unit that we work with. I mean, I think when you are at intake or can who for you guys and how you don't have a can who fighting song, everybody's can who <laughs> fighting, that's got to be a parody at some point. Uh, but your can who unit is just like most intakes where the process is very short. The system thinking is very is very short there. Occasionally, and I think you guys are partially uh, guilty of this, but not as, as extreme as we've seen, we lose focus on the customer of intake. We start to think that the customer is the caller 
And how do we cater to the caller? And how do we make sure that the call we're not, we don't have long wait times and we don't have big abandonment rates? Well, certainly we don't want those. But the real customer of CanWho is Can, because CanWho, their widget, what they make is reports. They give those reports to Can workers who have to go out and assess and investigate those. And so, making sure that what they are doing and the work that they're doing and the efforts are making the right widget for the right customer. Across the country and in intake, that's what we're seeing is the is the big thing is the disconnect. Um, I think there's a practice issue in intake overall as well. I mean, when 85% plus of the reports that we're taking end up as safe, um, the screening process. I mean, if I were to tell you 85% of the Ford trucks that you are building will never go on the road, they'll never be used by anyone. You would say, well, we're not going to build those anymore. Um, the problem is, is what's the right screening tool to get those out early and nobody's got that figured out yet, but make sure the documentation is for the right customer. And then I think there is some practice work in can do. In can it's uh, it's a little bit easier. There are three main things. I mean, the magic happens when we see the family and then the magic happens when we have our staffing and we share that story of the family with a more experienced set of eyes. Everything else is the problem. It's getting to the supervisor. The supervisor is a bottleneck. All the work has to, every report in the state has to go through a limited number of supervisors. They are a process bottleneck. Uh, the amount of documentation and particularly duplicative documentation mainly built around CYA, right? How do we cover our assets? Um, <laughs> that that becomes an issue. And, when it, and that all drives the time that work sits or the time that work takes. And then in... The ongoing efforts, alternative care and family care, I think what we're seeing is we've, we have to have what I'm calling decision-based staffings, which is can this child go home today? And a lot of times we remove the child because of risk to the child, but we tend to hold on to the child because of risk to the department, right? We become risk adverse and we don't want to make a mistake. So we don't try to put the child in a new permanency or back home. We kind of hold on because of our own uh, insecurities isn't the right word, but just guarding to make sure that, you know, we're taking the full 12 months to come up with permanency. When some of these children, we know at six, we know at four where they can go. So that's, we got to kind of switch that. Those are the three biggest issues going on. Oh, and, and Bill, what you were just saying, yeah, you know, it was deeper uh, than a systems thing. So I think you're deeper than that uh, because what you just, what you were just talking about, I think is, is a mindset. And I and I've been talking about this, and and this does isn't just in this division. I mean, as a guy that comes from the judiciary and has worked a lot with with that branch, has been in that branch of government for a couple of decades now, and uh, and worked with a lot of juvenile officers and lawyers and guardians ad litem. There is a mindset of fear, and I think that that uh, uh, what my my hope is from a mindset standpoint is that we we shift from being a reactive group that's driven by fear to a proactive group that's driven by hope and evidence and best practice and all that sort of thing. And and as part of why I love the name uh, of your organization, Change and Innovation, I think, and I think there's a, I think I've been talking to a lot of people, there's a hunger for that. There's a hunger for, we want to do something different and we want to, and we want to innovate. We want to discover. So, so not to say, so, Bill, tell us what we do to fix all this. Yes. Uh, but but if if you have some suggestions about the change in innovation we need, the direction we ought to think about going with our minds uh, and with our systems, what are, what are your thoughts about what we can do? Yeah. Well, I think fear is a, is you're absolutely right. Right. Fear. You have a culture of fear. 
And hopefully it doesn't feel like that in the office. It feels like you have a culture of pressure. Like we constantly have to get out. We constantly have to get things closed. We constantly don't want to be late. But a lot of our work is fear-based. And fear-based is one of the things that allows us to turn over the work to the court, right? And so turn that cadence over to court so we don't have to ultimately make the decision. We'll let a judge make that decision, which I think you know, uh, Daryl, from your experience is the rub, right? Because you went to law school. You didn't you weren't going to be a social worker. You wanted to be a judge. And now we're asking you to use your legal background to make a social work decision. That was supposed to be in conjunction, right? That was supposed to be together. And more and more what we're seeing is departments. And I, you know, I have not been in a courtroom in Missouri yet to watch the process, but across the country where I have, we're seeing more and more uh, departments kind of turn that over. So to change the fear, right? To get the fear out, I would argue that we have to change the process. And the processes that drive the fear are the over-documentation, right? The feeling like if it's not down on a piece of paper, it never happened. And if it's not on a piece of paper, we can't justify it. And if we can't defend it in court, then we then all the world will end. So everything we do has to be to that ultimate end is how do I convince someone that we did enough uh, for this child? And then we build our processes around that fear. If we build our processes around, we know we have good practice, we know we have to capture an adequate amount of the story of the family for the next person who uses it. And if we can improve those relationships with our courts, then I think we'll see the fear start to diminish. But it's kind of like a chicken or the egg, right? Who has to give first? Do we have to stop being scared and do you know some of that differential documentation and different practice? Or do we have to do practice and hope that that will, or I'm sorry, process, and hopefully that will drive down some of that fear? And I, I will tell you, and then I want to, Joni's, Joni's getting ready to say something. Uh, the, that fear is not only, is, is not only in this, in this division. I will tell you that that fear exists in the, in the judiciary. Uh, and I will tell you that I have had it. I've experienced it. I have sat there and thought, there's not evidence for this. There's not enough evidence here, but this scares me. And then, and then, you have to really exercise great courage to do what the law tells you to do and and to be able to shoulder the criticism that might come from that. And that's a difficult thing. And I think I actually, in my experience, I've, I've seen less fear in, in the 20 years. I've seen less fear coming out of this agency than I've been seen coming out of my colleagues and out of the legal community because we're not to, to Joni, to your point, experts, we don't know social work. We know the stuff like what you see, Bill. You went out and you saw it and you're like, oh, my gosh. Well, you know, somebody who's not trained in this and a lot of times the juvenile judges are circ- circulating in and that. And I what I went I did a juvenile detention. Uh, uh, you know, I, I was involved in a juvenile detention reform here and I went to Arizona and, and listened to a judge talk about decision making. And it, w- it was profoundly life changing to me because she she talked about balancing risks and benefits. And, and she said, I do all of that. And then I get to the end and I ask myself this question based on all that, what do I do if I'm not afraid? And Mm -hmm. it really says, okay, erase my fear. Uh, Terry is not here. Uh, But in her office is a plaque and it says, fear not. Uh, And that I think is a mindset we need to have. We need to approach it wisely. You know, I think, but with courage uh, and and fear not. And, you know, I, I think uh, getting the pro, for example, getting getting a unit that's expert at this, who's going to be looking at an instrument that's going to be uh, using 
the science and evidence to, to help us make those decisions, we've got to, when we are able to rely on it, it will not be perfect, but you know, maybe we can avoid that fear. Right? Yeah. And, and I think too, as, as part of that is to recognize that at your core, at what your department does, this is the riskiest decision that state depart- that state government makes across the board. There's not a more risky decision in state government. Should I remove this child? Should I send this child back? Because we're talking about a child's life. Most departments in state government don't make that decision, right? You guys have to make that decision thousands of times a year. And so it is a very risky decision. And when you have risk, then that fear kind of can, can creep in. So it's a, it's not just because we have workers who are timid, right? Most of our workers are bold. You have to be bold to knock on a stranger's door and say, hi, I might take your child right now. Um, you know, that's a bold lifestyle that, that your folks live. It's the fear that if we don't get it right, the consequences are so severe. And it's not just I might lose my job. It's that this child might get really hurt. I think this conversation, I think we could have like whole podcasts around all of these different things we're talking about. But one, you'd said about high pressure and it is a high pressure environment and decision and you have to handle that really well. But there's pressure working with the families. But then when you were talking about like this, this fear based um, and a lot of it, because part of my job, of course, when I hear that, right, is like I'm over our federal reports and our federal documentation. And when we very recently been in the news for lack of documentation um, that adversely affected us, um, I think part of the process and part of the goal is how do we make it possible to have the documentation we need to meet our requirements while still maintaining time for the family. Cause it is a lot, like there is a lot required and a lot you have to document or else it is like it didn't happen, at least as far as our federal partners or statutory requirements or whatever. And I think that that's what we're doing now as we explore a new case management system, as we explore processes, like how can we get what we need to show we are meeting our statutory and federal requirements while also providing an environment where staff can do the work that they're, that really propels a child and family to safety and stability and permanency. And that's a tough one. That is really tough. Um, Cause like you said, it's every lens coming together perfectly. And I don't know if any States figured that out. No, not completely. Right. And you're right. It is really tough because our natural reaction that every time something happens is to say, well, we need to make sure that doesn't happen again. And the way that we make sure it doesn't happen again is we put it in documentation. And then the feds come in and they see something when they review, you know, a quarter of 1% of our total reports and they say, oh, well, we found something in this one. So we say, oh, well, since you found it in that one and you wrote it up, now we have to have a PIP response about all of them. So we keep adding things Mm -hmm. to documentation and adding and adding and something goes wrong and we add, we add, we add, and we never subtract. And we think if we subtract, that then child safety is going to be hurt, right? For me, it's like we need to get back to where the two th- the two places where magic happens. Magic happens at the assessment investigation phase when we're with the family, when we're making our collaterals, when we're doing our research and making our safety decision. And the second kind of magic happens, I believe, when that worker has good support from their supervisor to have that clinical staffing to really talk about what's going on and what's the what's the story of the family so they can make a decision together on next steps. I think those are the two magic. What I would really love to see in, in a perfect world is how do we QA the magic and not the paperwork? Mm-hmm. 
right? The paperwork is not the magic. In fact, for the vast majority of our safe children, when we document it, no one's ever going to look at that stuff again. Can who will look at it if there's another call. The can worker who gets it, if there is another report, will look at it, but they don't read the whole thing, right? They look at when did we go out, how many times we gone out, why, and what was the final decision. If we could get to just documenting that, I think life would be better, but we can't get there unless we quality control the staffing and the assessment. And then, of course, we have to convince the feds to do it, which I don't want to get in trouble on my first podcast and never get invited <laughs> back, but it's a difficult task to get the feds to open their eyes to it. Um, so the balance is, is what can we, what do we have to document to tell the story that will be compliant without going, without writing a novel on every child, particularly the ones who are safe? They're operating out of fear as well. But I will tell you, because I think I can admit I've been kind of um, trained to do this since I've been at Children's Division, like on those very, that small percentage of critical events the first thing, um, and when I say I've been trained, it's because outside, you know, is the first task. First thing you go to is where what was our involvement prior to. Correct. So it's yeah. that fear base, though. I think in the, you know, work groups that we did, really looking at what documentation looks like statewide, because to your point, Bill, the part about, you know, who's going to pick up that safe case and really look at it, if you pick it up today, there's... Um, probably five different ways that a report is written that you would be picking up and not really sure where to skim to find the meat of the concern and what the actions that were taken um, were. And I think it was one of your um, uh, discussions that you had that you mentioned two things that really stood out to me is one, nobody signed up for this job to be a documentation expert. No one is like, how many hours? I really want to be a social worker at Children's Division because I can spend eight hours a day typing up narrative and be worried when I can go see my kids because I'm so excited to type up this narrative. Um, and we have narratives in spades. Um, and so nobody's lacking for that. Um, but the other piece when we're talking about a call center that was really exciting was um, kind of this concept that's probably happening now. Um, and a few people in our work groups really mentioned it, kind of those drive-by staffings where they're yeah. just looking at narrative and not really giving the fidelity of a staffing about how a child is safe that we would want for every child to have. And so um, I don't know if you could talk just a little bit about the call center that's coming up and, and how we're going to really get kids um, safety, safety assurance. Yeah. I think that that's, that that's really an important thing, right? Is that what we heard, not just in Missouri, but what we've heard across the country is when there's more work than time, one of the things that go is the staffing and the more it used to be just your experienced workers, eight years plus workers, they were having drive-by staffings. How are the Smiths doing? Oh, they're fine. I'll close that out next week. And that's fine. They've been doing this work for a while. We kind of have those workers we can trust. And as the work kept growing, what we found is more and more we have workers who are at the one-year mark or less having drive-by staffings and not full staffings. And so we have, now we, we take on a greater risk because we took half the magic away. And the call center is all about putting the magic back, right? It's making sure there's a supervisor level position to hear the story of the family, help to make that decision and document it. Now it's for safe children, right? And this will be all in the training that most of you will be getting in the upcoming weeks. And, and as you go, but it's for safe children, because if we have an unsafe child, there's a lot of local decisions that need to be made. So it doesn't make sense to try to centralize that. 
But for our safe kids, which are over 80% of the children here in Missouri, 80% of our reports are going to end in safe. And really what we're trying to do is only get 80% of those, right? We're only trying to get those children who are what, what the team called clear safe. They're the ones who you go, once you open the door and you have a complete view of the family, you're like, if Can Who would have known everything we know after this first part of the assessment, they would have never taken this. Those are the ones we're after. Um, so if the child is safe, they can call. They'll have it. It won't be instant at the beginning. There'll be some wait times. But eventually, based on Missouri's math, it will all equal out once you're through your backlog of cases. But they'll have access to somebody on the phone who will staff it with them. And here's the amazing part. They will become the document experts. They will be the ones who say, yeah, I signed up to do the documentation. So they should know the amount that complies with the feds, the amount that the next worker needs, and the amount that we need as a department so that we're learning from what from what we're doing. But that and no more. And so they'll document that. They'll staff it. They'll bring back the magic for every child. And then what we found, there's two other states using a similar model. I think your team's built something that's unique to Missouri, but a similar model. What we found is that somewhere between 70 and 85% of calls uh, will close that report on the first call. So if you make your safety decision and you make the call, there's a good chance that that will be off your plate. And because of that, we've seen uh, caseloads drop by um, 70% in the first six months. I mean, is there a light at the end of the tunnel for us? Do you have any thoughts for us about where, where we're going from here? The light at the end of the tunnel is a train. So we got to get out of the way. <laughs> no, I actually do think there's a, a tremendous light at the end of the tunnel from Missouri. I think you guys, because you are a healthy patient who just wants to get healthier, we all want to get healthier in child welfare. And I guess healthy is relative, right? Everybody's struggling with this capacity crisis. Um, but I do think taking the steps with the central consult unit, the steps that we'll talk about in a future episode with AC, um, I really do think that you guys are on track to, in can, to see those assessments go down. Uh, so, uh, you know, assessments will still come in. Reports will still come in. Caseloads will go down. 60, 70, maybe even 85% is what I'm projecting. Time to close. I believe that Missouri will have a time to close somewhere between the 7 and 15-day mark average. Uh, coming up. I think you're so everything that's going late now, I think that will virtually go away. Um, but more importantly, the way that we have it set up, we'll know the ones that go late, why they went late. Some will go late because they have to, to make those decisions. Then I think ongoing, I think you guys are in a good position for you, those children who come into care uh, to help them make decisions and build that relationship with the court so that we can both be comfortable with taking a little bit more uh, risk to make those decisions when they should be made. Cause it's a risk, whether we make it at six months or 12 months, yeah. might as well make it at six. Mm -hmm. I think you'll see a 25% reduction in caseloads in AC. If we are able to do what's in, in the report. And I think, um, as a teaser for a future episode, I've seen some of the, um, recommendations for AC. And I think that there's a lot of great work there too, that I'm excited to dig into on that part. Well, thank you, Bill. This has been a great conversation. Uh, we look forward to having more conversations with you and more conversations with everybody on this podcast. This is so exciting. We could, we could, we could have a different career podcast, <laughs> podcasts. That's the future. So thank you very much. It was a delight to have you. Thank uh, you, Bill. Oh, no problem. Anytime. Glad to be here.